Welcome to Inspire, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Kimberly Winston, sitting in this week for our host, Umbreen Khan. Last weekend was Memorial Day, the official start of summer. Well, it would be summer if I lived anywhere but coastal Northern California. Here, we spent most of the weekend indoors, away from the 40-mile-per-hour offshore winds that kept the temperature around 65 degrees. This summer is one of emergence, as we slough off our COVID restrictions and step back into a world we hope is normal, whatever that might mean now. In the Northeast and parts of the Midwest, this summer is also about another kind of emergence. Periodical cicadas, the ones that push out of the earth only once every 17 years, are back. The trees ring with their singing, and the streets, sidewalks, gardens, and parks are filled with their cast-off shells. Depending on your point of view, they are either miraculous or migraine-inducing, a wonder or a whopping pain. Either way, could we have conjured a more perfect metaphor for our first almost post-COVID summer? Turns out, cicadas have a long history of spiritual resonance that crosses cultures and faiths. I set out this week to explore that. When I call Dr. Doug Pfeiffer at Virginia Tech, I've got a burning question. Cicada, cicada. <laughs> Let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> most, most entomologists say cicada. But most people are not, like Dr. Pfeiffer, entomologists, scientists who study insects. And right now, if they are living in the northeastern United States, they are more than ready for the cicadas currently screeching in the trees to knock it off. Cicadas make that sound by rubbing their wings together in giant choirs that can hit 90 decibels or about the loudness of a power lawnmower. It's a sound that has been described as the caterwauling of a million cats, the mating cry of a race of aliens, or like being inside a giant jet engine. But for a lot of people, cicadas are not a nuisance but a joy, something to be celebrated and even revered as sacred. The ancient Greek poet Anacreon certainly thought so when he wrote this. We praise the auspicious cicada, enthroned like a king on the tree's summit. Thou cheerest us with exquisite song. Old age does not oppress thee, O good little animal. Sprung from the bosom of the earth, loving song, free from suffering, that has neither blood nor flesh. What is there prevents thee from being a god? But first, a little entomology 101, courtesy of Dr. Pfeiffer. There are two types of cicada. The annual cicada, which of course comes out every year, and the periodical cicada, which emerges in broods of millions from the ground every 13 or 17 years. There are 15 different broods of periodical cicada. 
They come out in different parts of the uh, eastern North America and in different years. Last year uh, was Brood 9. That uh, occurred in southwest Virginia, near where I am, and uh, adjacent North Carolina, Tennessee, and West Virginia. This year, Brood 10 is in northern Virginia, spreading north through uh, eastern Pennsylvania uh, and over through New Jersey. And Maryland, Delaware, Washington, D.C., Tennessee, Indiana, Kentucky, and Ohio. Brood 10 is the largest of the 15 broods of periodical cicadas in the U.S. They have black bodies with red eyes and red-orange markings on their, their wings and uh, somewhat on the body. So they, they look distinctly different, and they come out a little bit earlier, in uh, late April and uh, in, into May. A really remarkable difference is their developmental cycle. Uh, they synchronize their development. So a brood and an area will all develop at the same time and all emerge at the same time. This is an evolutionary strategy called predator satiation. So all the adults come out at one time. Predators can't put a dent in the population. But that swarm lasts only a few weeks. Periodical cicadas emerge, sing, mate, and die. And then the next generation burrows underground to feed for 17 years, in the case of Brood 10, before performing the whole show over again in 2038. That's the scientific side of periodical cicadas. But Jeremy Biles, an assistant professor of liberal arts at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, is more interested in the cultural side. And that, he says, as he reads to me from a book, goes as far back as ancient Greece, where the cicada was considered sacred to the gods Apollo and Dionysus. The story is that once, before the birth of the muses, cicadas were human beings. When the muses were born and song came into the world, some of the men of that age were so ravished by its sweetness, ravished by the sound of the muses, uh, that in their devotion to singing, they took no thought to eat and drink and actually died before they knew what was happening to them. From them sprang thereafter the race of cicadas, to whom the muses granted the privilege that they should need no food, but should sing from the moment of birth till death without eating and drinking. You have these ambivalent kind of qualities built into this myth. There is life and there is death. Cicadas, for the most part, tend to be symbols of rebirth. And, Biles tells me, this symbolism spans far beyond ancient Greece. Many Native American indigenous tribes and cultures considered the cicada sacred. The Hopi crafted dolls of cicada kachinas, spirit beings, and cicadas assisted the Navajos in their creation story, bringing them safely from an underworld into this one. You still see the cicada represented as a humped back flute player in Navajo art. Cicadas are symbolic in Chinese cultures, too. In the Han Dynasty, about 200 BC, small jade cicadas were placed on the tongues of the dead as a sign of immortal life and rebirth. In Christianity, Judaism, I think not so much, except kind of um, more colloquially as it gets taken up as a metaphor for rebirth. And how? Every Easter in a cicada year, Christian pastors of all stripes trot out the cicada as a symbol of Jesus' resurrection 
or connect the cicada's invisible underground presence and reliable appearance to the notion of an all-present but always unseen creator god. Josh Shoemaker, a Christian and avid insect lover, has even co-written an entire book on what insects can tell us about the Christian notion of the divine. It's called God and the World of Insects. They spend like 17 years underground. So they're underground in a dark world, a dark environment. And then they emerge to this this whole new realm and they come out. And it's kind of that way, I think, at least for me, from a religious standpoint, when we experience and be- become a Christian and we, we learn about God and we just, we were maybe in a place of darkness and now we've just come out to light. Then there's the number of years in a periodical cicada's life cycle. 17. For those into biblical numerology, that number signifies triumph over one's enemies or an ordeal. The Psalms list 17 enemies of Israel, and Noah's Ark came to land on the 17th day of the seventh month. And in New Age circles, the number 17 represents compassion, confidence, and spiritual awakening. You can buy cicada spirit candles, cicada amulets, and cicada yoga mats for performing the cicada yoga pose. Here's Josh Shoemaker again. I'm just in awe when I look and and think about that here is this insect that is in the ground for 17 years. And when I think about how, you know, God might look at that or look at his creation, it's kind of like this massive piece of art. So you have these different insects and they're all these little pieces of art. And cicadas are just one of the beautiful parts of that big picture. One thing cicadas are not in the Bible is locusts. Locusts are grasshoppers and they are more associated with God's anger or punishment than anything else. Think of the plague of locusts that helped convince Pharaoh to free the Jews, or of John the Baptist eating locusts in the wilderness to survive. I think there are sacred religious resonances in the cicada that go well beyond the kind of confines of traditional religions like Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, etc. That's Jeremy Biles again of the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Biles says, Periodical cicadas are objective ideograms, a sort of uber symbol that we can project all sorts of meanings and import on, including the Roman numeral X used to identify brood 10. So are you drawing a link then between what would I call it sacred eroticism that I associate with Julian of Norwich and the other especially female saints who, you know, went into raptures? Overthinking yes. of the body of Christ or looking at a crucifix yes, and the right. cicada. Yes, I think that's an excellent connection. If you look at that Roman numeral 10 as an X, it is also a form of a cross, right? And so it actually draws our attention to something linked with the crucifixion. And then with this sense of devotion to the cross and with some Christian mystics. And I think there's something here, a kind of link with asceticism, with discipline and devotion, I would say even an obsessive devotion unto the death of the self. That might be a lot of symbolism for one little bug to carry, but the point is clear. 
In other words, I think the cicada remains a kind of sacred symbol in everyday life to everyday people. And I think that this is maybe a way of getting at what people find so fascinating, compelling, and perhaps repulsive about cicadas, and in particular, the periodical cicadas, these broods of cicadas that erupt every 13 or 17 years. That's certainly true for David Rothenberg, who was described to me by an entomologist as a bug philosopher. He loves to tell people he is a cicada boy, born in a year periodical cicadas emerged, and he notes that they have marked a couple of milestones in his life, like his high school graduation and a move from the city to the country. He has written a half dozen books on the animals around us, including Bug Music, How Insects Gave Us Rhythm and Noise, and in it he ponders the meaning of the periodical cicada. Well, they tell us, first of all, you know, how wonderfully strange nature is and how so much of it amazes us and we haven't figured it out. We don't understand it. Maybe we don't need to understand it. We kind of share in the magic of it. It's no accident that scientists, when they wanted to scientifically name this group of cicada species, called them magicicada. They did that on purpose because it was like magic. 17, 13 prime numbers, that's like magic. That's like numerology. How could this possibly exist? A single one is so loud, it's like a machine. We're lucky that these periodical cicadas, each individual one is kind of soft. They're subtle. They go like, they're quiet, but there are millions of them. And that's where it gets loud. And that's just so fascinating. Rothenberg is a musician, and he is particularly tuned in to the sound of the cicadas. So that's the tone you hear when you're surrounded by cicadas. And it's like a drone, like familiar from Indian music, all kinds of music around the world. Drones are big, bagpipes, a single tone that underlays everything. It ends up not being boring because it grounds us. It's like the ohm. Yeah, it really is. The ohm is a kind of drone. Wow. And when you're in the middle of this, at first it does sound like this sort of scary noise that might bother people. But once you get into it and listen to it, you kind of inhabit it. You know, it grounds whatever sounds you decide to make. That ohm Rothenberg is referring to is the great sacred sounds oh, ha, and um chanted together. In Hindu teachings, the vibrations of those sounds represent the sounds of the universe, the sound of life, the sound of consciousness and enlightenment. All of that, he says, is contained in the rubbing of the cicada's wings. Rothenberg travels to witness the emergence of different cicada broods, usually with his soprano saxophone in hand. More than once, he has played along with them, letting them crawl over his body as he joins his song to theirs. Rothenberg, 
who is not traditionally religious. This is not a stunt, but a transcendent spiritual experience. It's incredibly humbling, but deepening, sublime kind of experiences. We know the sublime can be about feeling very small next to the grandness of nature, the hugeness of it. Millions, literally millions, and even billions of cicadas are out, and you're just one more voice, one more sound together in it. Don't think you're so great. You're the center of attention. Maybe play as quietly as possible so the cicadas are louder than you. You know, find a way into this. You're just one little thing. And that's tremendously empowering in a way to connect us to a nature that's so much bigger, louder, and, and more eternal than anything humanity is going to do. If we can share in this, we are getting in touch with something truly mystical and wonderful about nature and that elevates humanity in a way to being able to fit into this world that we so easily tend towards destroying. At one point, Rothenberg wrote a three stanza poem in praise of the cicada. Here he is reading the last verse. There will be low, soft wombs in the trees fluttering wings struggling to lift us between the trees. We will stare up again and wonder, who else has had to wait so long to face the air? No reason to go on except the only reason that matters. There's nothing else to do. This is the plan. This is our place in the plan. This is the sound. No periodical cicadas here in Northern California, more's the pity. That was David Rothenberg, author of Bug Music, How Insects Gave Us Music and Noise. We also heard from Dr. Doug Pfeiffer, an entomologist at Virginia Tech, Jeremy Biles of the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and Josh Shoemaker, author of God and the Insects. Coming up, we revisit a trip into the forest with a guide who takes Umbreen Khan on a Shinto-inspired forest bath. Stay with us. friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.com. 
www.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Kimberly Winston, sitting in this week for host Umbreen Khan. Remember how frightened we all were last June? Much of the country, much of the world, had gone into lockdown because of the coronavirus. People were staying indoors, and many streets, parks, and businesses were absolutely deserted. I know that here in Northern California, I felt confined suddenly unable to go to my favorite parks or beaches because they were closed, and claustrophobic because overnight my home office had to make room for both me and my husband. It was not a time I want to relive. Over this long year, many of us craved the outdoors, finding it offered more than a different environment. It offered us a way to relax. The belief that restoration is found outdoors is the central message of Melanie Chukas Bradley's book, Resilience, Connecting with Nature in a Time of Crisis. Last April, at the beginning of the pandemic, host Umbreen Khan met Bradley, not in the studio, but surrounded by trees. She explains why. These days, you hear a lot about what we need to do for the environment, like changing our behavior to combat climate change. But there is also another message that I've been hearing, from spiritual leaders to wellness guides and physicians, about what nature gives to us, a place not just to escape, but restore. Spending time immersed in nature has many benefits for our health, and now there's research to prove it, much of it conducted in Japan. About 40 years ago, the practice of forest bathing was adopted and promoted by the Japanese health ministry as a way to counter the adverse effects of stress. Now, at the time, there was no evidence to prove that it works. But now there is, and forest bathing is becoming popular in the United States, finding new devotees like Melanie Chukas Bradley. Oh, look at that beautiful spice bush with those charming little yellow flowers like When Bradley invited me to the Audubon Naturalist Society headquarters for a forest bathing walk, I was curious. So we are at the Wood End Sanctuary. It's in Chevy Chase, Maryland, right next to Rock Creek Park. It's the Audubon Naturalist Society headquarters. And a lot of wonderful things go on here. Nature education, conservation work. It's a wonderful sanctuary right next to Washington, D.C. And we're walking through the uh, Blair Native Plant Garden, and some of the little spring wildflowers are just poking up out of the ground. Look at the little spring wildflowers. They're beautiful. And Aren't I like they that beautiful? they remind me of daisies. I know. They look like daisies because they're so fully open. So these little ones that are reminding you of daisies are called bloodroot. 
blood roots. Yes. Now, we would never pull one up because it's a native wildflower. But if you were to look at the root, you would see some red juice coming out of the root. Hence and the name. <laughs> I know. And it's been used, you know, for everything from um, a uh, cure for warts to a love charm. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. And then... <laughs> Look at these charming flowers. Yeah, what are here. these here? It's they I mean, and I'm going to confess, I'm not great with plants. They This looks like a philodendron to me, <laughs> like a house plant, but with purple little eye drops or something coming I out of know. it. Oh, yeah, and those little eye drops are the flower buds and they're kind of a purplish pink. And beautiful. But when the flower opens up, it opens up into a beautiful little bell that is sky blue and it's called Virginia bluebells. Ah, yeah. now I have heard of Virginia bluebells. Well, there they are. And are these all native plants here? These are all native plants. This is a native plant garden. And if we were to walk down the hill to Rock Creek Park, which is the oldest um, urban national park in the country, twice the size of Central Park, we would find these same wildflowers growing all along Rock Creek. Mm. The bloodroot, the Virginia bluebells. Oh, there's a little white one called Dutchman's Britches. Dutchman's Britches? <laughs> yes. uh, where do they get the See? names oh. for these? So they're taking advantage of the first spring sunshine um, to bloom and then when, you know, when the uh, forest becomes shady, they will die back down. I moved to Washington over 40 years ago, and um, I wrote a book called City of Trees. I fell in love with the trees, and I've been a nature writer ever since. I love leading nature trips, teaching people about trees and wildflowers, more recently, I became a certified forest therapy guide, and I lead forest bathing walks. What is forest bathing? Yeah. I mean, let me just start with the obvious sure, question here. Sure, sure. Well, that's a really good question. What led me to it is that as a naturalist, while I love talking about trees, teaching people about trees, and, and, and being out in the woods with families and with adults... My favorite moments are when everybody just goes quiet and witnesses the wonder of the moment. That's really what forest bathing is all about. It started in Japan in the 1980s. It's rooted in the Japanese reverence for nature that's woven into the Shinto and the Buddhist traditions and the folk culture. All it is really is slowing down breathing deeply, and tuning in mindfully and open-heartedly to the beauty and wonder of nature. So I was drawn to it. The minute I heard about it, it resonated with me. And uh, now, you know, I find that on my regular nature walks, we have a lot more moments of quiet. You know, there have even been studies that feeling a sense of awe is really, really good for our mental and spiritual health. And that's what we do on forest bathing walks. So I'm so curious. You were drawn to this idea of forest bathing. Did you learn about Shintoism? I learned a little bit about it. I went to Japan on a forest bathing trip. 
And and the term in Japanese is shindin-yoku. Say that one more time for me. Shindin-yoku. Okay. It's spelled S-H-I-N-R-I-N-Y-O-K-U. <laughs> and it translates as forest bath or forest bathe. And it really means immersing yourself in nature. So on the Japanese forest bathing walks, and they now have um, forests all throughout Japan that are dedicated to this practice... And, you know, people come out of the cities to go into the forest to practice forest bathing. And people slow down. They they sit under the trees. They lie under the trees. They sit by the water. They dangle their feet in the water. They smell the wonderful forest smells. You know, not just the flowers, but the leaves and the twigs and the wonderful smells coming up from the earth. And they found it to be really therapeutic and they've also done a lot of health research, and it, it's shown a lot of physical and mental health benefits of spending time in nature, quiet time in nature. But I see a lot of folks with headphones in when I'm on walks, and I'm curious, does forest bathing require you to allow all five senses to tune in around you, or can you be listening to your music? Well, we don't have any rules, but if we did have one, I think it would be to unplug Think of the um, airplane mode setting on your phone as forest bathing mode. And just getting out, and when you unplug, and especially now when the headlines are so all-consuming and um, you know can really make us feel anxious, just unplugging in and of itself is very therapeutic. And then I encourage people, and it's not a rule at all, but it's just part of the practice to slow down and, you know, stay in one place for a while and breathe and just soak up the beauty of the moment. I find that being in nature, is it makes it much easier to be fully present. We're hearing birds singing now. We're standing next to this amazing tree. This is huge. Isn't it amazing? It's be, it almost reminds me of an elephant. I know. It looks so much like an elephant with this, this smooth gray bark with just a few wrinkles in it. Like yeah, an like a gray, a grayish I elephant. I know. It's the, elephant gray. And beautiful kind of full roots here yeah. into the ground. Isn't it wonderful? And I think in times of, um, you know, when you're, when you're feeling stressed or anxious or you know, whatever you're going through, spending time in the company of trees is always really, really good. It feels so good to be next to a big tree. And we can just settle into this experience and feel immersed and fully present in the moment. Talk to me about the chemicals. Plants give off all kinds of compounds. They have... Uh, protective compounds that are called phytoncides that protect them from pathogens. And uh, Dr. Lee in Japan, he's at the Nippon Medical School, and he, he's one of the lead researchers um, in the uh, physical and mental health benefits of spending time in nature. He has done research that has shown that when we breathe in these phytoncides, these protective chemicals that plants are emitting, it can actually boost our own immune systems. 
and can increase the number of NK um, or natural killer cells which fight disease. So it's very exciting. And, and I think that for people who spend time in nature, you just know when you're out in nature. I mean, it's wonderful to have all the health research showing that being in nature lowers your blood pressure, lowers the levels of stress hormones, cortisol and other stress hormones, and that um, it increases your immunity. It's great to have all that research. But I think when you're out in nature, you just know that this is something that's good for you. You know that when you're breathing fresh forest air, or even in a city like we are now in this sanctuary here, or even, you know, on a busy street if you're next to a tree and you're breathing the air, you just know that that's good for you. It just intuitively feels right. We think of the environmental movement as the issue movement that really raise the flag about the importance of maintaining mm-hmm. these natural spaces. Are you seeing new voices from the people that you work with that isn't per se political, but is coming at it from a different point of view? Or maybe Absolutely. it is political. I don't know. You tell Absolutely. me. Absolutely. Well, I think the way it works is that when you spend time in nature, especially if you fall in love with a particular place, and I encourage everyone to have a wild home. You know, in addition to the home that you live in inside, that you have a wild home and it can be your backyard, it can be a tree down the street, a nearby park, some place that you get to know. And when you get to know a place, it's it's a form of intimacy that's very much like a relationship with a person that you love. You get to know it in all its moods, all kinds of weather, all times of day, all all the seasons. And when you get to know a place intimately and fall in love with it, you tune in to everybody who lives there. You know, the trees, the flowers, the squirrels, the, the frogs, anybody who lives there, you become, you know, that becomes your world, and you want to protect it. So what goes hand-in-hand hand with this feeling of attachment to um, a particular place and intimacy with nature is a desire to protect I've heard uh, taking care of the earth uh, referred to as tending, you know, tending the earth. And I really like that term because it's very nurturing. It's a very nurturing way to describe stewardship. And then that stewardship can be anything. I mean, you, you will want to pick up trash. You won't want trash lying around. You may get involved in invasive plant removal. If there are any kind of threats uh, to the place, you'll want to protect it. And it also connects you, you know, because there are so many people who are uh, tuning into this practice of forest bathing all around the world, you feel the global connection with them as well. So it's, it's really a pretty profound um, thing. You're describing it like a spiritual practice. It is. It is. You know, um, it are there really communities is. around it? Are there? Is it a I solo think, practice or one that people come together in? Well, that's a great question because you can do it either way. You can do it solo, and I feel like I've kind of been forest bathing solo all my life. You okay. know, even as a little child growing up in Vermont, I'd be wandering around the woods and fields. I didn't have a name for it because that name hadn't, you know, that term hadn't been coined yet. Um, but yes, you can do it solo, and it's also wonderful to do it in, with a small group of people. The guide will give, we call them invitations, so I may invite people to, um, to notice what's in motion. Just, just notice what's in motion, and when you focus your mind on noticing what's in motion, it sounds like such a simple thing. 
but it's amazing how fully it brings you right into the present. So we'll wander around noticing what's in motion, then we'll come back and we'll share our what we've observed or experienced. And so you have both the solo and the collective sharing, and having both together is really, really nice. I'm curious, who comes to this? Well, you know what has amazed me? Um, we are we live in the Washington D.C. area, and we're we're you know we're considered a little buttoned down around here. But I have been amazed at the people who've come on forest bathing walks. The people who come on the walks that I lead are all ages, all races, genders. You know, there there's not like a forest bathing type, mm. <laughs> and. I, you know, I, you know, at first I would kind of worry, is this going to seem a little too new agey for some people? No one has ever expressed discomfort on any walk that I've been on. I think that, you know, once you get out in nature, it feels so comfortable and so right to be there that you just settle into the moment. This is Inspired production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Kimberly Winston, sitting in this week for Umbreen Khan. We are revisiting our episode on forest bathing with Melanie Chukas-Bradley from April 2020. Let's get back to the episode. Melanie Chukas-Bradley is a certified forest therapist. That's a relatively new practice that began in Japan in the 1980s as a preventative health intervention prescribed by the Japanese Health Ministry. Over the last few years, forest bathing has become more popular in the United States, especially after health research pointed to the positive effects on lowering blood pressure, reducing cortisol, and boosting immunity. I joined Melanie on a trail at the Wooden Sanctuary at the Audubon Naturalist Society's headquarters in Chevy Chase, Maryland, to learn more about how this is different from, well, just hiking on my own. So if I were on the Nature Walk Trail, um, if you were leading me right now, what would you be pointing out? So we might be noticing what's in motion. We couldn't miss that beautiful cherry tree in full bloom and the magnolia behind it. Um, I could give any kind of invitation to you. One of the invitations I love to give is imagine you're a child and, and just be a child here in the woods. And also, you're invisible. So do not feel inhibited. Are there any rules about how you interact with nature? There really aren't any rules. I mean, obviously, you want to tread lightly. You want to be respectful. But one of the wonderful things about it is it gives you such a sense of freedom that you can, you know, just be your natural self in the natural setting. I want to show you this. Sure. This is so cool. Okay, so this... See these fuzzy little yellow flowers all over this big shrub here? What is this? It's called spice bush. Ooh. And when you scratch and sniff a twig, it has this wonderful spicy smell. Can I smell? Let me see. Yes, let me. Mm. 
Oh, wow. Easy. Oh, wait, that smells like tea. I, it, and you can make tea from the Really? Yeah. It smells like a mix between allspice and cinnamon. The wonderful thing is that, yes, it can be made into a tea. And when I was on a forest bathing walk in Japan, up in the Japanese Alps, north of Nagano, our forest bathing guides made us a tea from a very close relation of this spice bush. Ooh. It was really wonderful. I felt so right at home. So we're in a time right now where there is a lot of anxiety and there's a lot of concern about being distant as a means of protecting each other. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we're all learning as we go. And one of the things that I've learned is that you want to find a wide trail so that when you meet another walker or hiker or jogger, you can uh, give each other the six-foot distance that we're, we're being asked to keep from each other. And I like to think of it as not that we're being isolated, but that we're all gathering together to outwit this virus. We're gathering together. We have, you know, made this decision that we're going to outwit the virus. That's how I look at it. And being out in the fresh air is really good for us. So I encourage people to do it, but just to be mindful of the fact that you do need to leave enough space between you and the other people who are also out enjoying the beauty of nature. Touch is so good, and because we have to limit our interpersonal touch now, hugging a tree is really a wonderful way to touch and and feel connected. I encourage people to touch, to touch, you know, to touch the, the trees, the leaves on the ground, the leaves on the trees, the soil, the rocks. It's really wonderful to hold stones in your hand and just, you know, feel that, you know, all the surfaces of a stone and the weight of a stone, rocks. Um, It's all really wonderful. Just because we're isolating doesn't mean we can't touch something Mm -hmm. that's living. What are the rules that you would encourage people to just be mindful of before they start touching nature? So you don't want to touch anything that's going to hurt you. So you don't want to touch a poison ivy vine, um, which is, you know, that is the poisonous vine in our area that we have to be concerned about. Um, You don't want to pick up ticks. And then you don't want to cause any kind of ecological damage. So it's always good when you're hiking in a woodland or park to stay on the trail as much as possible. And when you do stray off the trail to make sure that you're not harming the, you know, harming anything around you. One of the things I love about forest bathing is that we can let go of our worry and our guilt and just enjoy the beauty. We all carry a lot of guilt about what humans have done to to the earth. We really carry a heavy burden and we feel very Um, responsible and that's a good thing that we feel responsible but it is a heavy burden we also have a lot of worry about climate change and environmental damage that we carry with us too and on forest bathing walks we want to let go of that as much as we can so that we can just feel fully present and say oh look at that beautiful spice bush with those charming little yellow flowers like little galaxies of stars all along the branches. 
And it smells so be and smell smells amazing. Oh, I feel like I'm having a cup of tea. We have tea at the close of our forest bathing walk. That's something we learned from the Japanese guides. Tell me about the experience in Japan. I was there uh, with a small group of North American forest bathing guides for three weeks. And we were the guests of forest bathing guides throughout Japan. So we were actually participating in the research they're doing there, both in the field and in the lab. And before we went on our guided walks, um, we had our vital signs checked. We had our blood pressure checked, our pulse, our uh, salivary amylase, which is an enzyme that can indicate stress if it's in high levels. And we had the vital signs checked before and after each walk. And after each walk, my blood pressure was lower every time, and my pulse was slower. All my vital signs showed that I was in a much calmer state. And then we went to Chiba University outside of Tokyo, and we went to the lab of Dr. Miyazaki. The two lead researchers on nature and health in Japan are Dr. Lee and Dr. Miyazaki. And I had my brain waves checked. They, uh, Dr. Miyazaki and his assistants showed me a, a urban scene, you know, a very intense urban scene with no greenery in it, and then showed me a forest. And you could see my, my brain waves, you know, in the frontal part of my brain relaxing as, as I was looking at the forest. It was pretty dramatic. I am really grateful for the research on um, the health benefits. But for people who don't feel compelled to spend time in nature, when they know that it is, is, you know, demonstrably good for their health, they're much more apt to prioritize the time. I've been talking to a lot of folks lately who practice meditation. and I, I learned years ago from someone who suggested to me that part of it is observing where your mind wants to go. Yes. And when your mind is surrounded by natural beauty, that's where it is. Thank you so much for this tour. Let's walk back if you're okay with that. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much, Amber. I have so enjoyed walking and talking with you. You may hear us breathing a little more heavily. <laughs> getting our so, steps in. Yes, getting our steps in. I have been um, making sure I get at least 10,000 steps a day. And that is very good for my mental health as well as being out in nature. Oh, here's something really special. This is one of my favorite spring flowering trees. This is a native tree. It's called redbud. And see all these purplish little buds all along the twigs? Little tiny raspberries or grapes. They do, they do. And they're going to open up into deep pink flowers. They're just beginning to open. They look kind of like little caterpillars to me. Yeah. So it's called muscle wood or ironwood because the wood is really, really hard. 
This is a Japanese tree. It's a Japanese star magnolia, and it's so fragrant. Oh, wow. I can absolutely <laughs> smell it. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful? Ugh. It's like, it smells a little bit like a spa. <laughs> like what? Like a spa? Like a spa. Yes. It is. It's, it's aromatherapy. Oh, that smells so relaxing. Here. I just, if you could see wine. me now with my nose <laughs> up a branch. That was Melanie Chukas Bradley, a Washington, D.C. author and naturalist who leads field trips and tree tours for the Audubon Naturalist Society, the United States Botanic Gardens, Smithsonian Associates, and other organizations. She is the author of The Joy of Forest Bathing, Reconnect with Wild Places and Rejuvenate Your Life, and Resilience, Connecting with Nature in a Time of Crisis. That's all for this week. If you missed any part of this week's show, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. While you are there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can also find our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or the podcaster of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there, you can help us out by leaving a rating and a review. Thanks to MC Yogi for our theme music. Additional music for this week's episode is by Blue Dot Sessions and Kevin McLeod of Incompetech, shared under a Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This week's episode was produced by Umbreen Khan, Kevin McCarthy, and me. Kimberly Winston. Umbreen Khan is our host and executive producer, and Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. Remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. We'll see you next week.